Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend, John Patrickoff. John and I met, must be 15 some odd years ago, when he was Chief Operating Officer of the Tribeca Film Festival and Tribeca Enterprises, the mothership. Uh, he is the CEO and co-founder of Athletes Unlimited, which is very much at the center of the conversation, the growth, and the excitement around women's sports. And in fact, Athletes Unlimited is driving an awful lot of that. Uh, I will call you a visionary, John, uh, and it is a thrill to uh, capitalize, if you will, on our long-term friendship and make you the third father-son duo that we've had here on Great Minds. So a hearty welcome. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. And uh, it is. I think it goes back to 2007. So it was probably exactly 15 years ago when you were such a great partner in the Tribeca Film Festival and, and someone who gave us a lot of energy and enthusiasm and support. And I learned a lot from working together. And obviously, that's turned into an amazing friendship. So it's great to be here. Fantastic. So, John, I was thinking about this last night and I was up at Yankee Stadium where when you were running NYCFC, uh, you spent so much time. And I realized, as referenced a moment ago, you're the third son that we've had. I had Sir Giles Martin, who's the son of George Martin, a legendary producer of the Beatles. We had the great Marshall Chess, who was the son of Phil Chess of Chess Records, legendary label going back to the 50s and 60s, all the great American soul and blues artists. And Marshall went on and ran Rolling Stone Records and so much else. And I would love to start in an unusual place here, John, but that's the challenges and perhaps even the burden of being the son of someone who's very accomplished. Your father, Alan, who's such a jewel, as vibrant today as he's ever been, you have a great, great family. But talk about growing up as the son of someone who is a pretty special guy and what extra that gave you and where it might have made things a little more challenging for you. Thanks, Matt. Start on a, on a personal note, kind of threw me a curveball right off the bat. I love it. I am incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have grown up with two loving and supportive parents, both my mom and my dad. And, you know, as it pertains to, to my father, I mean, I honestly, I really have been fortunate in that I have only really seen amazing, wonderful things that have opened up. I mean, he has been so supportive of me since I was, uh, you know, a young kid. He exposed me to a lot of things that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise, you know, growing up with a venture capitalist as a father. And there were always business plans around the house, always new ideas. He was always supporting the underdog, uh, always looking for opportunities kind of where other people maybe didn't see them or weren't interested. And so uh, unlike the venture capital industry today, back when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was a very small cottage industry, call it and, it, and it, and it wasn't mainstream and it wasn't about technology. It was about a lot of, uh, let's call them unsexy businesses, whether it was uh, salmon farms or uh, medical devices or whatever it might be. This was not this was not the internet go-go days of, of today or what we've seen over the last you know even 20 years. So I grew up with a lot of support. And today, even today and throughout my professional career, he's just been my biggest supporter. I mean, uh, I get called probably three times a week by him telling me he's been at a meeting where he's been talking to somebody about Athletes Unlimited and promoting it, as he'll say, or giving me a phone number of somebody to call. And you know, you can't ask for much more than that. And then as for the burden, I really don't see it. Uh, I haven't. And I think some of that, you know, probably when I was younger always existed, but I never saw it as a, as a liability. And I always, I think, had enough foresight to understand that it came with a lot more pluses than minuses. And then more recently, you know, in my career, um, you know, there gets a point when, when you do develop your own path. I mean, I didn't go into the venture industry. I didn't even go specifically really into the finance world. And so he's a big figure in a lot of areas. And his influence and, and, and reputation touches many industries and certainly ones I'm in. But for the last 20 plus years of being at Disney and then being at Tribeca and then being at NYCFC and now at Athletes Unlimited, a lot of that has carved kind of new paths in, in areas like sports and film and entertainment where I would say his he, he's not directly involved. And so it's been a wonderful relationship. We speak every day and I'm really fortunate that, to have had him and, and my mom as biggest kind of role models and influences in my life. Yeah, in the most genuine way, you know, I'm envious of that relationship that you have with your dad. He's such a jewel. And uh, what I admire about you, John, is that you have very much paved your own road. You've sort of taken the best of, you know, some great teachings 
and built your own houses. And that's to your credit. So, all right, listen, I'll continue to try to do all I can to uh, throw you a, a knuckle curveball now and then. But let's go back to the beginning. You go to a great school, uh, Harvard, you graduate, and you work for one of the great companies that in particular is a great training ground. And that was the Walt Disney Company where you worked in strategic planning going back, give or take 25 years. Talk about those early reflections of Disney and how that foundation working in strategic planning, really, I'm going to guess in some ways gave you building blocks that you're still building on today. Absolutely. So it really was, I guess it's a left turn uh, coming out of college because I had every expectation of coming back to New York and working in the finance industry or consulting industry. And then Disney came to recruit at Harvard and one thing led to another. And literally within the course of two weeks, I was taking a job at strategic planning at Disney. Uh, And later that summer, I would go out and move to California unexpectedly, totally unexpectedly. And it was, as you said, I mean, it was a formative experience. that the team back then in the late 90s was an incredibly exciting time. Disney had just bought ABC, Capital Cities ABC, of which ESPN was a big part of that acquisition. Disney was you know, a company that was dynamic, where there were executives coming in. Michael Eisner was running the company, but Michael Ovitz had joined at one point. And you had Jerry Laybourne, who, who was there, and a whole host of other executives, many of whom have continued to go on and succeed in so many other companies, whether it be eBay or others. Um, and it was also the time at which the internet was taking hold. And, and I got to sit within this group of about 50 people strategic planning who were all of us kind of assigned to different areas of the company to look at what the future might hold, where were there opportunities for growth and working alongside the business uh, units to kind of help plot strategy, work on the five-year plan, work on strategic transactions. So amongst our, us 50 people, one of us was involved in some capacity in kind of everything that was happening, whether it was the consumer products division or the parks division, or in my case, I spent a lot of time working with the ABC ESPN team on the growth of that business. And it was incredible. I mean, it was very rigorous. We worked really long hours um, at that. In those days, uh, you had pagers and, you know, you were getting paged at all hours and you know, there were there were famous lines that wouldn't go very, very well over today, I don't think. But, you know, there was the the mantra at Disney, if you weren't, you know, if you don't come in on Sunday, don't bother coming in on Monday, um, which, you know, had a rough edge around it. But it was really exciting. It was a lot of really, really smart people. I think the big knock on that group was that it, it kind of had some rough elbows and didn't didn't maybe work as collaboratively with some of the business unit divisions. And I think as a young person, I was cognizant of that. And I think somebody who I think didn't, I wouldn't have liked to have been or seen in that regard. That's not my style. And so I think as a young person tried, uh, and I think was pretty good at the fact that I was able to build really good relationships. And so when I applied to business school at the end of three years, my recommendations, you know, came from people I'd worked with at ESPN or ABC, and there were some opportunities even to stay at the company in an operating division. I decided to go back to school, but I think that was probably the other big thing I took away, which was just a lot of exposure to really senior operating executives who I grew to respect a lot. I was talking about Chris Dreesen earlier uh, this week, actually, who was the CFO of ESPN then, and I was working very closely with her, and I worked with the team and uh, at ABC and Bob Callan. So I got to know a lot of the executives and see kind of what it meant to be you know, coming growing up in a New York environment where a lot of the most successful people were bankers or consultants or lawyers, this was my first time being really exposed to senior business leaders and seeing how inspiring they were in the sense of being both leaders of people, leaders of business. Uh, and Disney, you know, you just couldn't help but feel like you were part of the, the fabric of what was going on in culture and society. And, and that was a really, really exciting time to be there. And I loved it. And so definitely, definitely helped shape my business skill set, along with kind of a vision for, I think, how media entertainment was changing at a time when the internet was really coming, you know, to take hold. You opened up an interesting door and, and let's walk through it together. You talked about a rough culture and, you know, a line like, if you're not here on Sunday, don't come in on Monday. I was on yesterday with a a longtime friend of mine who's a real estate icon from Chicago who's now retired. He's in his mid-80s. And in the course of the conversation that we had, he said two or three things that I laughed at, but that in today's business culture, you could not say out loud. You've watched a real transformation of business culture, and I'm sure the way you run Athletes Unlimited is very different culturally from what it was like in those early days at Disney. 
Talk about, John, your reflections on where business culture has gone and are we too soft today? Uh, here we go. There's another, this is, this is a curveball. I wasn't ready for this, Matt, on, on, uh, on this beautiful New York City morning. Such an important topic. I, mean, I can't think of a more important topic to cover and, and dive into. I mean, what I can say is that this experience at Athletes Unlimited, and for those who aren't listening, and this is Alan Patrick off here, I need to I need to make sure I get the Athletes Unlimited framing here. Um, Athletes Unlimited is a network of pro sports leagues, which I started in 2020 with Jonathan Soros, who's my fellow co-founder. And over the last now three years, we've built out four professional women's sports leagues. Obviously, starting that announced on March 3rd of 2020, right before the days of COVID, we saw through that and I've had really a lot of success, but a long, long way to go. And it's been an exciting, exciting time to be in the women's sports industry. I bring that up importantly, just to set the table, which is that from my career at Disney, which obviously was a very large established company, I then ended up uh, with a little bit of time at Wall Street and working in private equity and then going and having this formative experience at Tribeca, which I joined in the very early days, but I was not the founder of that company. And there's a big distinction, right? I, it obviously was very squarely Robert De Niro, Jane Rosenthal, and Craig Hatkoff. And so I joined, let's call it a year or two into the formation of that company. And I was there 11 years and I was a very, was started as CEO, COO, became the president, was on the board of directors, had a very senior role, but I wasn't the founder and I wasn't the CEO. And then when I joined NYCFC, Similarly, it was the team had played for one year. It was still a very young organization. I came in to run it and be the president of the club, but I wasn't the founder and I wasn't the first. And now when um, when Athletes Unlimited started with Jonathan, I literally, I, I am the founder of that company alongside of him. We started with a blank sheet of paper and we had the ability to create something from scratch. And so it's very different, right? To be the founder, uh, as I've learned, than it is to kind of come in and be, a part of a team that that is shaping something, and certainly when there's something there already. So I I consider that I you know I should own and take responsibility for everything we've created at AU, and the and, and that should be with the good and the bad. And I'm will say that the thing I'm most proud of is we have a very very collaborative and inclusive culture. And what I hear most from the people that work there. Uh, and work with me on a daily basis is that it is a place where they feel like their voices are heard, where they feel like they are involved in many, if not all, kind of the, the decisions that are going on in the company and where they will say it's a company where their voice is heard like they've never had it heard before. And that I take a lot of pride in. And we spend a lot of time thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we also spend a lot of time thinking about how we show up every day and the culture we're building, the way we treat one another and the tools we have in place to help ensure that, that, that that's the case. And so doing that as a startup is really interesting because we have a bottom line. We got a lot of targets to you know achieve. We've got a lot of business to do. And yet we have, and I and I thank Jonathan Soros, my fellow co-founder, for this and for all, and I can talk more about what, what he's done, but really creating a space where that has been prioritized from the start. And I believe that while indirectly it seems sometimes like we're spending resources or time or effort on things that may not be leading directly to the bottom line. I couldn't believe that is more not the case. I think that all of this investment that we make in the people, in the culture is directly leading to us being a more successful company on the pure business business front. So it's been exciting. It's a very unique role to be yeah, speaking to someone who's also a founder. You know, I've learned a lot. I think where we are today is a place that's constantly evolving, but one where it's great for me personally, because I get to show up as who I am every day and bring forth what I care about, which is, you know, the impact on the larger world um, and and not feel like I have to segment that out either into my own personal life, but I can actually show up at work every day with that uh, on, my, uh, on my mind. So let's stay with this for a sec, because you flagged it as arguably the most important topic facing business culture today. And, and I happen to agree with you. So during advertising week every year, Donnie Deutsch is very gracious with his time and always asks for me and he and I have a conversation together on stage. And this year, when I got off, I felt like we were both outdated. That a lot of the ideas and things that we were talking about, that we sounded old. Donnie's a little older than me. I'm, I'm 58. Give us your reflections. You're younger, John. A little bit younger. 10 years younger, give or take. 50, yeah. I'm 50. Those Disney days, that was a tough, I'm going to use the word harsh environment, right? Not always kind. Today's culture 
is much kinder, much softer. I'll use that word again. You know, we've adapted certainly our culture here to the times, and I think you have to bend to culture. Culture does not bend to you. Uh, and I'm all in favor of work-life balance and flexibility and a lot of the things that COVID really accelerated. But do you think we were better workers in the harsher environment? Did we get more stuff done? And, and I'll ask again, do you think that business culture today is a little too soft? Well, I certainly don't think it's too soft. I mean, in fact, I mean, I, I find that I'm constantly learning um, and, and uncovering, you know, ways in which, um, you know, people need to be supported in which inequalities exist that, you know, even I'm not fully aware of. And so I, I, absolutely not. Um, I really, um, I have learned a lot through my experience at Athletes Unlimited. And I want to be, I want to be clear, like, you know, it's interesting, we're having this conversation and it's such an important conversation, but I do want to, you know, say again, for, for anybody who's listening that, you know, um, I've been privileged in my career, both, you know, at Tribeca for 11 years, where we were supporting underrepresented voices. And there was a lot of great work we did with filmmakers and films that maybe wouldn't have seen the light of day. And we gave audiences to important issues in soccer at NYCFC, a sport that bridges cultures like no other. But but both of those were very big, you know, business operations, right? We, we had shareholders who were seeking profits. But at the same time, there was a lot of good that was coming from, and I fundamentally believe that from sport, from film, from culture. And I know you feel the same way. I know, Matt, that's a big motivation that it's always been for, for you as well. And I feel like it, it at uh, Athletes Unlimited, you know, I'm I am sitting in an industry which is growing incredibly, incredibly fast with tremendous investment coming in where team valuations and, you know, uh, our, our counterpart league, the National Women's Soccer League, you know, have gone from like $2 million to $50 million in three years, where there's hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in the WNBA and NWSL and in Athletes Unlimited. And so, but it's interesting, right? Because women's sports has maybe historically been seen as like a charitable activity. You know, it's it, it was perceived as that. And so I've lived at this time where, there's been a significant recognition for the for the, the commercial opportunity that exists. Uh, and at the same time, it's been a flashpoint for a lot of important issues that have also come up around um, how athletes are being treated by coaches, how um, their inequities and the way in which, you know, the industry, which, you know, you've been a huge part of has maybe not fully appreciated the value of women's sports, even though the numbers have been there. Um, and so I sit here today um, as someone who not only, you know, leads an internal team, but someone who's business partners. And really, I mean that business partners with 250 pro women athletes who are heavily involved in the running of this business because they're, uh, we have athlete representation on the board of directors. We have athlete representation on what we call our player executive committee. So every week I'm meeting with a group of players in each sport to talk about all the important issues from the business to the sporting sides of what we do. Um, and so, you know, our, our structure of our company is set up in a way, and I'll go into this for a second, that's different than any other company uh, that's out there. I mean, first, we're a public benefit corporation. So many people have heard of B Corp. So we set up ourselves up as a public benefit corporation to start with, which means that we prioritize both shareholder return and impact on our larger community. And then the second part, which I just touched on, is that the athletes are involved at every level of decision making, which is something that had never been done in any pro sports organization before. Uh, I mean, certainly you have the, the WTA, maybe in the you know the PGA, which are associations of players, but but in, in having a team sport organization where it's not the team owners and it's not the general managers who have the control, but it's really the players and our executive team, it is a fundamentally different structure. And that I think is one of the biggest innovations and one of the biggest parts of, of what I've seen. And so to answer the question, like, it, it, are, are things too soft or, or um, you know, do we, uh, do I feel in any way, you know, removed from that? I, I mean, couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I'm, uh, I've learned a ton about a, a whole host of issues, some of which specifically relate to, you know, uh, inequities with regard to women, but also, you know, dealing with issues such as uh, transgender inclusion in sport, how we've developed our pregnancy policy. And, um, you know, it, it, we're just now revising our caregiving policies. And, and you know, every time I dig into one of these topics, um, I see, you know, how I think ultimately it, it, it leads to a tighter culture within our 
players in our in our staff, but in within our staff themselves. And um, one thing in sports also just goes to this is people have worked so hard. I mean, one of the biggest issues you always have in sports is is the burnout that comes with it. And so, if anything, I'm still in a mode where I'm trying to find out how we balance um, you know people's workloads and their schedules so that you know, we don't lose people because, you know, the sports industry is grueling, media industry is grueling, as you know, it's kind of an always on merging of personal and professional. And so um, I still feel like I'm always in the place of trying to continue to kind of make it a place where people could show up. And, and, and I'll speak specifically, um, and sorry to go on for a long time here, but I'll, I'll make one last point that I continue to see, even in a company like ours, which has flexible paid time off, which has caregiving policies, maternity policies, I still see the challenges in particular faced by parents, in most cases, moms of taking care of small children or being caregivers and coming to work in a full way. So I still think there's a long way to go um, as a society and as a country to be more inclusive. And ultimately, if we can get that right, I think that leads to just greater economic productivity overall and greater success. Yeah, I think that was a great answer, John. And, and I'm glad you went deep. The consistent hallmark, and you touched on it lightly, is you've always given voice to the un or underrepresented, whether it was getting films that would not have been seen and exposing filmmakers and subjects that might have otherwise been left in the dark, or what you did building bridges to what is the world's most popular sport by far in soccer or football, as it's known in most of the world, and what you're doing now. Uh, at Athletes Unlimited. So there's a remarkable consistency to it. And if you go back in history and you look at the early days and formations of unions, you know, that was to protect workers from exploitation. Where it's gone today sometimes, I think, is, you know, gets a little crazy in New York in particular when you need, you know, 20 guys to turn on a light switch uh, because of some arcane union rules. But the history of unions in, in America was to protect workers from exploitation. And I think what culture's doing now, and Athletes Unlimited is a great manifestation of that, is it's giving people a voice and letting them have a seat at the table uh, to shape the new dynamic of business culture uh, going forward. And, and I think what you're doing there is, is really representative of how it can work well. And that when every voice is heard, you end up with a better culture and a better business. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I do think that going back uh, and I mean, the business that, you know, I've been in and you've been in largely that, you know, touches around media, entertainment, sports, culture. I mean, the the only way you're successful in these is to understand what's going on in, in society more broadly to touch on the, the important salient issues and emotions and things that people care about. Like ultimately, it doesn't work if people don't care and they got to care a lot. I mean, one of the things we talk about you know, I'm going through strategy sessions now with, with some people on my team. And, you know, you know, when you're a upstart sports league, you know, like we are with athletes unlimited, you know, you're, you're, you're creating something, you know, that's, that's new. Um, and what you're looking for and you want to build is something that people absolutely must watch and care about at a deep, deep level. Now it's a lot easier with the Yankees or the giants, cause they've been around a hundred years and, you know, they, there's generational connections, but in, in a lot of these sports, and in particular, let's say in women's sports, um, you know, where some of those ties don't go back generationally, um, you know, you're, you're really figuring out to have a compelling business. You need people to care a lot. Like they, they, they have to care, you know, among some of their top priorities in life. Like they want to tune into our games. And we're, we're doing a lot of serious work about like, how do you get and what does drive someone to care that much? And, um, there's a lot of things, you know, it's got to be, and I give you some of where our thoughts are around that, but, you know, the stakes have to be high. It has to be well-produced and high quality and people have to understand it. Um, but also it's got to be culturally significant. I really do believe that. So like as much as, you know, I know, and we're getting close to a place where every softball fan in the United States will have to turn into athletes unlimited softball because it's the best players in the world. It's on ESPN. The players are playing hard. They're high stakes. It also to really break the barrier, those softball fans want to know that other people who aren't even softball fans care about it and watch it. And that's like what I talk about. And that cultural relevance um, is something that you have to be in tune with and you have to be constantly striving for in order to create a big business in the, in the industries we're in. Let's touch a little bit on Tribeca. You had a, a great, great run there, uh, 11, 12 years 
joined right after uh, it was started. As you mentioned, uh, the founders, Craig and Jane and Robert De Niro. Go back to the origin of the festival, because I think a lot of people have forgotten that, what it was all about initially. And if there are one or two highlights that, you know, when you look back on that tenure, you know, there were so many. I remember that great, great night, the premiere at the Beacon, the film about SNL and so many other films. You were always very kind. And my son, Benny, and I, we would have days at Tribeca where we would see, you know, literally six or seven movies in a day racing all around New York to make one to another. But talk about that tenure and the origins of the festival and any particularly fond moments as you reflect on it that come to mind. Yeah, I mean, so, um, you know, Tribeca Film Festival started after 9-11. You know, Robert De Niro and Jane Rosenthal had, uh, you know, famously, you know, and importantly, Bob and Jane had come from California, uh, I guess, in the late 80s um, and set up shop with Tribeca Productions in Tribeca, one of the first to kind of be a, a West Coast or you know, Hollywood producers that came back to New York and set up business here. And so they were very deeply rooted in the Tribeca neighborhood. And obviously after 9-11, which happened only, you know, hit only a few blocks away from there where they were, uh, you know, Craig, who was Jane's husband and in, in the real estate industry and a real, um, you know, kind of tightened in that, in that world of real estate finance, they all got together and said, you know, what can we do to help this city? And they started with something called Dinner Downtown, which was to bring people back to Chinatown and Little Italy. And then ultimately they had the idea of starting a film festival and um, it was a spur of the moment thing. They pulled it together in a very short period of time. And the first film festival happened in 2002. And it, you know, was both a community event, but also um, you know, brought together the the worldwide, you know, film industry. So they got Star Wars to be the opening night film, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they had this incredible family festival that took over uh, Lower Manhattan on one day of the of the festival. And it was an amazing event. And then it kind of went from there. American Express came in only 90 days before the festival saying, we're bringing our, our, our staff back to the office right across the street. We need to be part of it. And from there, it kind of took off. And when I got involved, it was because it had kind of grown into something they hadn't expected. They all had other jobs and other activities. They weren't doing this full time. And they said, we need somebody who can do something like this full time. They knew about my Disney experience, my private equity experience. And so I joined um, in the early days. It was right after the second festival. And really to come in and, and build a business and, and a year-round infrastructure and take it and professionalize the organization. And I'm really proud of what I was able to do with them over 11 years. Um, and when I think of some of the highlights, um, I mean, you know, I loved every aspect of what we did um, every year. I mean, the film festival, um, you know, was such a, a powerful man. I mean, there's nothing more powerful than being in, in one of those movie theaters where, you know, you watch a film with, you know, an audience and then, kind of unexpectedly or expectedly now, you know, you, you get the, the director or one of the protagonists in the film comes up and, you know, can just answer all the questions and unpack everything that you've just seen. And being in those rooms at those moments, I mean, I think um, one of the moments that, you know, no one forget, you know, one can forget is it is Flight 93 when that movie that really captured the events of, of 9-11 was played at the Museum of Modern Art. And I ne- never forget being in that, in that theater for that, screening and just what it meant how raw it was um and, and then on a on a much more a lighter note i i remember vividly um when tom cruise came with mission impossible and as part of that um did this crazy tour of all five boroughs and and i remember him jumping up on the top of an suv and like rallying the whole crowd just thinking this guy is a movie star like he is i can see this success um, but but most powerfully was, like you just said, was kind of bridging those cultural divides. I had the fortune, a good fortune of going with Tribeca to uh, to Rome, where we partnered the Rome Film Festival, and then ultimately to Beijing, where we brought the Tribeca Film Festival to Beijing. And every time I kind of got to go somewhere outside the country and connect with people in faraway places around film and the significance of Tribeca, I think those were really, really the highlights for me. Uh, and and I was there 11 years and it was an amazing, amazing run and and uh, enjoyed it so much. And I've been so you know excited. I've stayed, you know, obviously very close and attending it and uh, I've moved on from it now many years ago, but but uh, it's incredible to be part of, uh, of what that institution is and what I think it'll be forever. Yeah, and still still going strong today. Such a great, great uh, story and a great, great run. And, and you brought so much to it from a business vantage point. 
uh, and should be very proud of what you accomplished there. So you then make a leap into sports. NYCFC, MLS, I, I would have lost the bet X years ago on how well they have done. I was very involved. When I was a kid, I ran the sports commission for New York City and led New York's uh, participation in the, in the 94 World Cup. And a lot of those folks ended up being involved in the formation of MLS. I would have lost all my money at Caesars Palace. I would have bet against them. Uh, and look how that's turned out. So I'd love to hear the story of how you got to NYCFC. And I guess that sort of inadvertently or purposefully paved the way for more sports in your world. Absolutely. So um, when I decided that I was going to uh, transition out of uh, Tribeca, um, Marty Edelman, who sits on the board of Tribeca, is also on the board of City Football Group. And um, I became aware of an opening there. And Marty said, hey, listen, you should you know, throw your hat in the ring and 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 you should talk about it. I said, I don't know anything about sports. I, I honestly, at that point, had really not even heard of NYCFC, um, which was a team, you know, it was the soccer team in New York along with the Red Bulls, but it was early in its days and soccer wasn't even on my radar. And, and you know, uh, and one thing led to another and I started to talk to Marty and I got to meet the team in New York. And then as part of this interview process that I all of a sudden ended up in, again, always thinking to myself, like, I don't really know much, you know, I'm not a sports executive, um, but they saw in me kind of what I'd been able to accomplish at Tribeca, the experience at Disney um, and said, listen, we have a lot of soccer expertise in house. You know, we, we, we need somebody who has kind of the business know-how, the knowledge of the city um, to help complement this team. And what really sealed it was I went uh, as part of the interview process over to Manchester to the headquarters of city football group, which for those people who don't know uh, really um is an incredibly unique organization. At the time, uh, owned Manchester City in the UK, both the men's and women's team. It owned a men's and women's team in Australia. It owned a team in Japan, and it owned NYCFC. Today, it's more than ten clubs around the world, you know, including in Asia and Latin America, in many countries in Europe. And uh, the CEO, Ferran Soriano, really is an incredibly innovative and visionary leader, uh, along with the ownership group there, to really think about how to create a global network of soccer clubs that could benefit from the synergies and the know-how. And when you go to Manchester, like I did um, for this interview, and I had no idea what to expect, and you walk into this absolutely uh, gleaming, incredibly uh, forward-thinking, kind of modern uh, headquarters in this, you know, industrial city of Manchester, it was just so exciting and so energizing. Um, and it really felt like being in a, a startup, uh, a Silicon Valley company in, in, in Manchester, England. And so Ferran said, we want you for this job, but if you're going to take it, you have to come live in Manchester for three months and learn soccer before you take the job. I said, okay, um, doesn't sound so bad. I did have to leave my family behind, but I left New York. I accepted the job in January, actually on my birthday in January of, uh, of uh, 2015, I went over to Manchester. I spent three months there traveling with the team, learning international soccer, really getting a lot of the pieces that I would ultimately need. And then joined, then joined NYCFC in March of uh, 2015 for the uh, start of our season. And I, uh, the team, the first season before me, because they'd only played one year, uh, had had a really bad record, hadn't made the playoffs. Uh, they'd had a lot of transition. And so I joined, um, was fortunate that there was a, a new head coach who joined the team had learned a lot. Um, and, uh, like you, when I was thinking about taking that job, I, I, the problem with you betting on it is I'm not sure who would have taken your bet because everybody I said, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to go take this job at NYCFC said, do not do that. What are you doing? Major league soccer is going nowhere. Soccer. What do you tell everyone's been talking about? It's history. You know, the joke is it's always been the, so you know, the sport of the future. It's been the sport of the future for 20 years. Um, but I didn't listen uh, a little bit because I'd probably heard it before at Tribeca when, you know, I'd said I was joining a film festival and people said, well, what are you going to do for your day job? And I was like, no, this is my day job. We're going to build this big entertainment company. So I kind of heard it before and I didn't listen. Um, and, you know, you probably gave me bad advice and a couple other people, including the late David Stern, who was really became a mentor to me in this period of my life. And he said, what are you doing? Don't go do this. I did it anyway, and you're right. I saw this incredible. I got exposed to the global soccer uh, world, which was so much bigger and and so much more interesting. And it was a time when MLS really was growing at a really rapid pace. And that's ultimately what, as you're you're right, led me to 
uh, you know, when I was starting Athletes Unlimited, which was that um, I, I had seen so much value being built into these clubs, the franchise values appreciating. And honestly, I wasn't an equity, I wasn't an, an equity owner of the team in any capacity. So um, it had started to creep into my head, like, you know, what am I going to do? You know, what could I build? How could I do this? And and I got exposed in 2017, 2018 to the National Women's Soccer League and what was happening there. And I was like, these stars uh, on the women's national team are bigger than any soccer stars in the United States. Um, you know, and this league, you know, if, if MLS can do it, like, and can build teams that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, why can't the women's uh, league do the same thing? And if I'm an entrepreneur and maybe my capital base is a little lower to, to start, hey, maybe I can get involved as, as part of the ownership team. And uh, it led me, like I, the first day uh, I decided that I was going to be leaving NYCFC, you know, the next day I started to really explore this opportunity and this idea. Um, and that led me to explore women's soccer and then women's basketball uh, in 2018. And start to talk to investors. And I got somewhat of that same response that, you know, you would have given me uh, to NYCFC back then, which was everybody said, stay away from women's sports. It's been the, it's been, you know, people have been trying for 20 years. It's been really hard. Uh, more people were, you know, looking for the exit than we're looking for the entrance. And, you know, I guess is consistent with my career. Maybe even goes back to the beginning with my father. Like, you know, I think when people are zigging, you know, it can sometimes be good to zag. You don't want to zag too early. But if you're zag, if you get zag, if you zag at the and it's the right time, that's the the key, and and that is, I think, what I was able to do um, with athletes unlimited and women's sports, which is, you know, if I had zagged back in you know the early two thousands, you know, no matter what I had done, I couldn't be successful. But these past three years have just been part of a big, big um, moment, a big shift, a big you know recognition of the value and the commercial potential. Yeah, I think absolutely uh, right place at the right time. And one of my early projects many, many years ago was the WUSA, which was the Mia Hamm, Brandy Chastain League. It was backed by a number of the cable companies, Discovery and John Hendricks and Time Warner at that time. And, uh, and it didn't work as a business. The timing was not right. But you could see the passion of the young kids and girls in particular, and those stars. I mean, Mia Hamm, Brandy Chastain, you know, those were big, big stars. And that was really the breakthrough of, of the sport in many ways. It paved the way for where we are now, but, but you're absolutely right on timing. Give us the Athletes Unlimited origin story, because I don't think we've ever really dug into that. I touched on it a little bit just now, Matt, but, but basically, you know, I'm sitting at NYCFC and, and as I said, just noticing, you know, in the summer of 2017, 2018, just um, we're coming off the Women's World Cup, seeing huge TV ratings, uh, looking around and, and being able to name, you know, Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe and Carly Lloyd and others. And I, I took a look at their social followings and I was like, their social followings are orders of magnitude larger than any player in the in the MLS. And we're living in a world where everyone's talking about social media, where I had a sense that the importance of kind of individual athletes and individual athlete brands was growing more. We'd seen that with LeBron and seen that with Kevin Durant and others who were really building these enterprises and how important that had been to the success of the NBA. Um, and it just struck me that like if the MLS is, you know, like I said, seeing these team valuations, you know, rise from, you know, 10 million to 50 to 100 they were then getting to 200 and there's all this demand i said it just doesn't make sense that um you can have such big stars um you can have a lot of the same overall you know, interest and there's just not a commercial you know pathway here to, to build to build a league so i started to look at team ownership um uh there were lots of different ways to approach that and then at the same time uh in October, a couple months into my exploration, I went to lunch with Rich Kleiman, who is partners with Kevin Durant, somebody I've known for a long time. Um, and I was getting ready to tell him about what I was doing. And, he, and somehow he starts the lunch saying, you know, Kevin and I think there's a huge opportunity in the WNBA. We think women's basketball is the greatest thing. We're really thinking more about it. I said, this is crazy. Do you know I'm looking at women's soccer? He said, well, you know, the Liberty's for sale. You should go you know, explore that. And I said, that's a great idea. And I started looking at the Liberty and I started looking at um, the, the team uh, in New York uh, called Sky Blue at the time. It's now Gotham FC. And I got really excited about putting these two teams together and building a business around that. And um, 
in the course of that process, I really started to talk to a number of potential investors and partners. And Jonathan Soros, who had been a small investor in Tribeca, emerged as kind of the most interesting party. Um, and so I was fired up. I had this business plan. I had a few investors together. And on Christmas Eve of, of 2018, we went to we went to brunch in the West Village. And um, Jonathan said, listen, I think this is a great idea. I think you've identified an opportunity in women's pro sports. I'm motivated. But he said, I think we should approach this differently. I think we should start from scratch with a blank sheet of paper and build sports leagues uh, from, from, from scratch. I don't think we should go get invested in these leagues. There's too much complexity. There's too many challenges. I don't really want to go be an owner around the table with all these other owners. Um, and so I, I say to people, I left that lunch, you know, I smiled. I said, that's a great idea. That's terrific. And I walked away and said, oh, that's it. It's done. Like my biggest investor's leaving. He's got some crazy idea. This is never going to happen. And, you know, I don't know that I have the stomach to go, you know, forward with this just alone. And, or, 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 and so, um, we talked over the early months of, of 2019. And as we talked, you know, about this idea of starting from scratch, I was able to just all of a sudden say, well, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? What if we, you know, didn't have all the travel costs? What if we did everything in a smaller stadium? Because I'd had the experience of playing in NYCFC in Yankee Stadium and seeing some of the challenges that come if you don't own your own stadium. And I said, what if we could really emphasize the individual players' brands, not so much build franchises overnight? Because I don't think either of us were believers that you can, you know, build a sports franchise and brand, uh, you know, the 12th team in the New York market. It's very challenging. So we refined these ideas. And by the spring of 2019, we had kind of the working elements of a business plan. And that idea was, what if um, we create a network of leagues in sports where there's not really a, a, a pro um, a pro league, but there's huge proven interest um, through the college level or uh, the Olympics um, and where there's there's real stars. And um Softball popped up as the first because, you know, I don't know if you know, but you probably as a sports fan have realized that, you know, there are 1500 games a year in college softball uh, on ESPN. It does incredibly well in the ratings and there wasn't really a strong pro league at the time. And so Jonathan and I had this idea. What if we create a five week season, have the entire season in one location and really build something um, that um, could stand out, would be unique and where we'd bring the best athletes together for this five-week season. And that was the plan in 2019. And then our second sport was going to be volleyball. A billion people play the sport of volleyball around the world. Um, there are leagues in 20-plus countries. More girls play volleyball in the United States than play basketball or soccer on, at high school level. Um, and there was no pro league in the United States. So we called up USA Volleyball, and they said, why don't you talk to some of the players and you know see what they think about this idea? Um, and in the fall of 2019, we met with a group of softball players, talk about the softball league. We met with a group of volleyball players. And that really was the pivotal moment, that fall series of meetings, because as I go back to the beginning and going back to the athlete's role, that led us to an incredibly, incredibly important, you know, re realization that if we're going to do this, we should do this in partnership with the athletes and have them help us build this. And I will say to this day, I don't think. Um, up until that time, there was any single sports executive who'd ever launched a league talking to the athletes. Like you go in, you usually talk to owners or you talk to the coaches, maybe, you know, certainly probably talk, hopefully talk to some fans, but you never talk to the athletes. You just assume, you know, they're going to come play and they're, um, you know, at the service of everybody else. So when we met with the athletes, we said, if we partner with them, they're going to help us like figure out what to do, what not to do. We're certainly not the experts in softball or, or, or volleyball. And since then, um, you know, it led to us announcing, as I said, on March 3rd of 2020, the launch of our softball league. Um, uniquely because of our model, because we're going to play in one city with a limited number of players over a limited number of weeks, it was incredibly well-suited, you know, for a COVID environment. It really was the bubble before the bubble in a lot of ways. Um, and then, it went off with uh, in August of 2020 and was incredibly successful. ESPN came on board, CBS came on board, Nike came on board, and the players loved it. The competition was incredible, and the format, which you know we won't get into in a lot of detail here, but is is innovative and different, um, resonated really well with with both fans and players. And since then, we've now launched lacrosse, um, and we've launched basketball, our fourth sport, and we've run ten seasons across all four sports. And media interest, brand partnerships, all that coming along really nicely. I, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, I still think we are just scratching the surface personally, but the the broad 
investment we've seen um, from you know our partners, um, whether that be you know Nike or Gatorade or EY or Aspiration or a host of others, like we've just got great interest from great partners. Um, we have ESPN has been an absolutely amazing partner. They're going to be broadcasting. We have three, four leagues. We have two softball leagues running this summer, our lacrosse league and then our volleyball league. They're all exclusively on ESPN, but half the games on linear television, half the game on ESPN plus. Um, and what we're finding now is in each of our seasons, um, you know, fans are coming in from both the local area, you know, softball happens in Chicago, but people are flying in from around the country who love softball because they know this is the place they're going to see world-class professional softball. And um, I think it's a, it's a good moment. I mean, you know, startup sports leagues have had a, have had a checkered past. It's not easy, just like the startup industries in general, it's hard, but it's a really good moment to be you know, in, in, relatively speaking, in, in in the startup world in sports, because there are just so many more avenues to connect with fans. Um, what we've really leaned into is these individual athletes, partnering with them, lifting them up on social, leveraging their followings. And what you see is by having 250 pro women athletes, even if none of them have, you know, the, the multi, you know, tens of millions of followers that others do, their engagement is so high that when you aggregate 250 athletes, um, and let's say they're your following in the five or six figures, but their engagement rates will literally be five to 10 times the engagement you'd see with, you know, maybe an athlete with a bigger following. Um, and then you're seeing, and, and like I said, uh, and I would say it's so key, and it goes back to, to, you know, MLS and any of these leagues, what you can't do in sports, you really can't do it alone because it requires, it requires media, it requires um, partners, but it also requires just the overall kind of, um, the, the, the kind of ecosystem growing. And so we've seen that because the WNBA is getting more investment and better TV because the NWS is getting NWSL is getting more uh, investment in TV and following it helps athletes unlimited. So really alongside those two leagues, they cover, you know, soccer, um, WNBA, obviously in basketball and us in our four sports um, that leads to just collective interest, collective visibility, and really the growth of this industry. A absolutely fantastic story. And as we start to wrap, you know, you really see how it all ties together, John, as, as we've, you know, gone through this, building on that foundation that your parents gave you, building on that business foundation, and that those early days in strategic planning at Disney at a very exciting time, just as digital media was really coming together, big acquisitions, like you mentioned, ABC, ESPN, but what you did going forward for the next 20 years was pave your own road. And what you've done and are doing with Athletes Unlimited is paving a new road, not just for you and your partner, Jonathan, but for the way that we think about startups and sports and sports leagues. And uh, it's an incredible story. Uh, I remembered when you were talking about Manchester, we were in touch then back and forth when you were living there for a little while and sharing some of your experience that I, I can't believe how much time has passed since then. Uh, but it's a great, great story. And, and just as we wrap, give us the vision. If we're doing this again in a year, where do you think Athletes Unlimited will be? Um, I, I'm going to do that. And then I, I want to, I don't want to end without, uh, a personal note to you. So I'll come to that in a second, but uh, on athletes unlimited um, I think that we are um, we're really just at the beginning of, of, of this opportunity and you know, where we are looking to move and we're in four sports today. I want this to be not just must watch you know, TV and leagues for the fans of, of volleyball or for the fans of softball, but for, our art sports and what we're doing to be broadly culturally relevant, as I said before. And I think that's an important part of anything we do in, in media entertainment is that, you know, I want these to be incredible high quality leagues for every, you know, every fan of softball must watch what we're doing in softball, but also for people to appreciate the cultural relevance and, and, and to be part of the kind of cultural fabric. And, and we're working right now on an original series with boardwalk pictures, the, the team that was behind, Cheer and Last Chance You and Welcome to Wrexham and Chef's Table. And they're working on a documentary series on Athletes Unlimited. And, you know, a year from now, I want that to be, you know, on on major platforms and for people to, you know, see and understand these these women for 
uh, and these athletes for the incredible superstars that they are. And so um, there is so much opportunity. I think that, um, again, I, you know, to use my softball analogy, there's seven inning games, so it's not nine innings. Let's be careful here, but you know, we're literally just in the second inning here of, of, of getting this off the ground. And so I'm excited about all that, that lies ahead. Um, but I do want to end by, by coming back to you because I think Matt, you know, I got the, the good fortune of meeting you as he's in those early days at Tribeca and, you know, you're, you're one of the, um, you're, you're obviously a very unique and, and important figure in the media and advertising and in broader worlds. And, you know, what you've been able to do over these last 20 years is, is obviously nothing short of amazing. And I think that um, you showed up in those early days as somebody, you know, incredibly willing to support, but also came to, to the table, as you always do, with kind of your full person. And, and I think you showed up as who you are, both as a person and a business person. And um, I think, you know, you've been a mentor and and I've learned a lot from watching you. And I think um, there are a lot of people who, you know, are appreciative of the communities you've created both here in the United States, but around the world. And I think there's no one who's a better representative of kind of what we're all doing, which is, you know, bringing people closer together, um, doing good business, you know, making money, but at the same time, building relationships. And so, you know, thanks for being the, the model that you are for all of us. Um, we're appreciative. Oh, my goodness. That was uh, very unnecessary, but very appreciated. And uh, John, I've enjoyed this immensely. Uh, uh, you're a jewel. And uh, let's keep talking. I want to do everything I can to continue to help you go and grow. And I'm uh, very proud to be uh, a friend of the Patrikoff family. Uh, I love your dad's plan to live to what's it 100 some odd? What's he figured out? We're at 114, but that may grow, you know, that may, that may extend. And that's someone I wouldn't, someone and something I would bet on. And uh, have a great uh, day and love this conversation. Thanks, Matt. Great being with you.